Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1, O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Hopefully everybody's doing well. One thing that I want to start off with is I hope everyone who's listening to this can go in in whatever platform you're using, Apple, Spotify, give us a five-star review and comment. I'd really appreciate that. We, I'm going to continue to push that because that keeps us up on the uh, the Google chain and everyone is aware of this podcast and, and I want it to continue to grow. So appreciate everybody listening and following along. Everything's been good on my end. I've been busy traveling. Uh, I'm going to be traveling again next week and, you know, I'm I'm busy. I'm, I'm hoping to get some time in turkey hunting, but it may not be the case, at least for the next couple of weeks. And uh, just the way it goes in this business, you're constantly busy. So I'm happy today we've got Todd Shippey on. If everybody remembers Todd, he's been on a few times, Empire Land Management. Todd's a great guy out of Wisconsin, and uh, he does all sorts of things out there, helping uh, landowners all over the place improve their, their hunting property. Todd, you on the line? Yeah. Hi, John. How are hey, you? Good, man. How have you been? I'm good. I've been good. What's uh, what's going on in your world? What have you been up to? Staring out the window, wishing it was warmer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I've been doing a little bit of burning for some prairie habitat restoration and uh, burning some canary grass down in some in swamps. I like to burn them initially, even when it's wet. Sometimes you got to burn them three times, so it burns the dry stuff off the top now and lets the next layer get dry. You can burn that. <laughs> for more controlled easier burns than uh one very spectacular burn when it's too dry when the whole marsh is dry and it can get down into the the deep part of the peat of the marsh sometimes so doing some of that now and uh some hinge cutting a little bit anything that you can get in until because i got a feeling that this year it's going to go from cold to hot and everyone's going to feel like they're behind the game so yeah that's where we're going yeah, no, same thing. I mean, back and forth, it was, you know, super hot. Now it's cold again. We might get snow again, so it's just back and forth. Hopefully it doesn't snow for the open our turkey, but you, you never know around here. Hey, I got a question for you. So just you brought up a topic I'm going to dig. The the idea of reed canary, I think a lot of people have it on their, their property. At least I've been on a lot of clients with that. Uh, I've got it on my own property, and I deal with it from time to time. You know, you suggested burning. Have you Have you allowed it to grow? past that six, seven, eight, you know, inch stage and let it grow a little bit, then spray it off again and kill it when it gets a little bit taller? Have you waited till maybe past that? I don't know. I want to say that the mid June period and burn it at that time and, and have different results. I'm, I'm just kind of interested. 
Yeah, you can let it get longer. People think that you can only burn when everything's brown, but if you let it get longer and sometimes then it'll dry out a little bit, the soil underneath, you can burn it, it really stresses it out. So if you have, if this is possible, the best way to wipe it out is let it grow up and just before it seed heads, mow it or cut it off with a string trimmer. Then all the energy from the roots will come up because its its whole goal is to create more seed. So it really taps into the carbohydrates out of its roots and pushes again. And then you you know don't allow it to happen. Then spray it off in the fall. Just don't let it go to seed. Spray it off in the fall, and you get a really good kill. That's a good example. Uh, I think a lot of people struggle, and I know it's sometimes an annual thing. You're continuing to fight that plant uh, just because it's so you know interfering it becomes so invasive on the landscape at least in like wetter areas you know you you don't know what to do and you're not creating kind of that space it's like you know a pure switchgrass stand it's very similar to that i mean the difference would be an upland versus you know an aquatic area but you know that the density of it is so great that that's all that can grow in those areas sometimes and it doesn't provide really too much other than a good cover source essentially so it's finding habitat and that's about it a strong wind or rain tips over but remember any cool season grasses that you're dealing with their strength is their weakness so they're green before anything else is green anything that you want um that that's a good plant is green so you can spray it then and then additionally in the fall it's green long after the warm season things have gone dormant so you can hit it again then yeah Yeah. um So there's a number of uh, number of ways you can attack it. Yeah, no, it's a good point and something we, we you know something to take note of for anybody who has that issue on your landscape, something to deal with. All right, let's get into the topic. So we don't really have too many planned discussions at this point, but we want to talk about food plots because you know we're near the season and food plot timing is critical. You know what you're planning. You know all that goes into that. We we'd done a podcast previously uh, with with. Uh, our buddies from the juries and now now we're you know thinking about like real you know we're at the point we're needing to make some decisions maybe you're buying seed or you've already purchased seed um let's go through the easy process and and we're talking spring at this point maybe walk us through some of the things todd that you're doing either with clients or on your own or new properties that kind of get the ball rolling for people well at the seminars i get a lot of the and the deer classics, I get a lot of people that come up and say, I never put in a food plot. I want to put in a food plot. What do I do? Where do I start? So the first thing, let's break it down to that. Guys, never done it before. You got a new piece of property. I think the first thing to do is just relax a little bit because you can't, it's very simple. If you don't overcomplicate it, um, you don't have to stress and think, I can't wait to get out there and get this plot in and I hope it warms up pretty soon. Um, so let's, let's take the guy that has no equipment and he wants to put it in a food plot. So you take, um, you kind of think that you, well, let's put it this way. Clover, I, I still like clover as a backbone of a program. Yeah. Holds deer around. It's there. It's there uh, for pregnant does um, right away in the spring. Does are pregnant. Fawns are born pretty soon. It's high protein. Bucks come off of come out come off a rut. Go into winter. They're emaciated. So it's something that's there. It's green and it's high protein right away. So 
to get Clover established with limited equipment, you, the process really starts this year to put it in next year. So I'll talk about a couple ways to do that. Let's take the guy with absolutely zero equipment. Take a four gallon backpack sprayer, some Roundup, some ammonium sulfate, mix it in your four gallon sprayer. You can look on my Instagram. I've got the formula on one of my posts on there of how much to mix. You spray off an area, it kills everything. You leave that thick thatch. You never have to till it at all. In about July, it'll get, you'll have some seeds germinate again and it'll start to look green. And now that depends on how much rain you get. If it's like a total drought, it'll just stay dead. Hopefully you get some rain. Comes up again, July or so, you're going to spray it off again with Roundup and AMS. The AMS that's in the Roundup, um, it speeds up the decomposition. It kind of heats it up a little bit and speeds up the decomposition of the thatch. So then in fall, the, the best way to do it, you'll show up August to September, somewhere in there. And I always say do it right before you know it's going to rain. Not the rain that they put out there every seven days just to keep the farmers, giving them hope. The rain with that you know is going to happen. Three-day rain. Go out, spray it again, and broadcast your seed right on top. And at that time, you can use a blend of clover and brassicas, but you're really better off if you just use brassicas. So now you've got a nice fall plot. You've got pretty clean soil. The following year, when you go look at it, you're going to see it'll look almost like bare dirt with thatch. And your brassicas have broken down. They've mined into the soil a little bit. You fed your deer. And at that juncture, it's a perfect opportunity to frost seed your clover into that bed. Now you have a nice weed-free clover patch that uh, it fed them the first year. You had something to do. You were breaking down all the weed seed. You don't have to fight for that first year. Your first hunting season, you had some available food, highly attractive food. And the very next year, you put clover, you frost seeded your clover into that nice, clean, weed-free patch, and you're off to a really good start. Now, you can, in that fall that you put brassicas in, if you wanted to, you can use a blend that has clover and brassicas. Whitetail Institute has Vision is one of them. That's whitetail, chick- or it's, uh, clover, chicory, and brassicas, but there's a lot of other things that you can use that are similar to that um, that you put in in the fall. How do you feel about that? I'm listening. I'm listening. And I like your process. I, I think the one tweak and something that I've kind of worked through is, one, I have established clover in the spring. I've established it in the fall. You know, I find it a little bit easier in the fall than the spring. Timing's critical. I would never in the spring plant clover solo. Uh, if, if Again, if you're just planting it, uh, even if you have equipment, I would always have a, a nurse crop with it to outcompete any other plants in those areas. The issue that I run into is if it's a pure brassica stand, like you said, you're going to have bare ground. It's going to be ideal for frost seeding. I prefer in some capacity having, you know, some winterized or some crops that survive the winter, whether it's rye, wheat. So having a pure stand of brassica, I think, can be beneficial, but I would would prefer something to be resident through those winter months. And then just, again, outcompete and provide, you know, maybe a nursing crop situation for that clover that's going to that's going to eventually uh you know germinate and and uh, expose itself in those early spring months so you know the idea of just kind of a, a pure brassica blend and and the other thing i want to talk a little bit is like contextual like the the topography and like slope of the topography may not be the best you know if you have like kind of sloping grade type scenario you may just not want a a plant that 
you know, the nitrogen content's so great, that plant degrades. Nebraska degrades very, very quickly as the winter months come on. That isn't always true, though, in some instances when you have a good snow layer. If the snow layer is consistent, your brassica will actually last all the way to the spring months. So, you know, it's all circumstantial, but in my brassica blend, I always, in my opinion, I want a grass that's going to survive the winter months. Just, just an add-on to Todd's point. I don't think one way is right or one way is wrong, but I think you need to think sometimes about you know maybe the erodible ground that you're working with. If you have um, uh, soil that has poor hydrology and bad infiltration, you know those may be examples. Clay would be a good example of that where you may want to consider you know something being resident at least so you have more texture uh, on this uh, you know with the soil so you're not you're you're not having erodible ground. Uh, just to add, Todd, to to your point, so. Think good examples, and for having limited equipment, to Todd's point, and a lot of us are in that boat, you know, I've done food plots like that on a budget where I'm going in an area and backpack spraying it, managing it through the summer months, and then, you know, suggesting what he does is, is uh, you know, broadcasting and, and dealing with it that way. Now, Todd, you, I've seen you had a bunch of, like, grain drills recently, and I, I know you have a no-till, but I know you have grain drills, either you're selling them or fixing them up or doing something. Um, that's kind of the evolution of this is, you know, tillage with a grain drill or some, some people converted grain drills to no-till. Um, any suggestion there on how to handle it once you start getting equipment a little bit different? Well, um, those little grain drills, I, I haven't made for people. I have one that I rent and I also use it, I mean, a little like that in sand country is a no-till drill. It cuts in through the sod because that soil is so soft. Yeah. So you can use that there. Um, as far as a no-till drill, I think the biggest mistake that I see people make with those is think um, when they buy a drill, they can just go drill in anywhere and it just doesn't work. You don't get, I was just on a property where somebody had a guy drill uh, switchgrass in and it's just so inconsistent looking because if you don't have smooth ground, some of the, the cultures aren't in the ground. So you have to do it at least once to smooth the, the area that you're going to plant, till it or do whatever, whatever tools you have to smooth it off. Then you can go into a, like a buckwheat, rye, uh, brass or clover type, no-tilling, um, sunflowers, whatever, whatever kind of product that you want. I got a question for you there. So on that example, sandy ground, and would it be better off, and I, I know I've seen I've seen videos of you doing this where you've waited to the ground was was hard, frozen, and then went in no till. Or would you be better in some cases if it was softer, just broadcasting it? Uh, what what would you recommend uh, for switchgrass specifically? And I know we're not talking food plots now, just switching to switchgrass. Oh, it depends on how big of area it is. I mean, you can e- either way works really pretty good. Um, it's really the soil prep for for the switch between whether you're a cast or drill. Um, if it's a bigger area, I like to just use my drill. If it's uh, kind of a smaller something that you can walk a couple acres, then I'll, I'll broadcast it. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, let's get into kind of um, the, the planning, the other planning techniques, uh, traditional tillage, uh, crop selection. So let's say we're going into the spring months and uh, we're, we're trying to come up with a plan and we want to have Maybe not a monocrop, so we don't want one particular seed. We want multiple seed blends. Why don't you walk through, you know, maybe a, a simple seed blend and maybe more complex seed blend. And assuming that they're they're doing tillage and they've done some preparatory work in the, the fall time, 
they're not having a large amount of weed base that they're working with. They're able to kind of till it and then maybe they're spraying again. They're, they're waiting for the right time to plant. Like you talked earlier, moisture is, is critical. We're waiting for the rain. Can maybe walk through some, some examples of, of food plot seeds you would use in, in the spring springtime period. So you're saying right now, and I'm going to till and plant some some food plots and yeah. what would I plant? Yeah, what would you, yeah, exactly. So for the spring month periods, you know, and you've, you're doing traditional tillage, uh, rototiller, disking, you know, mold board plow, whatever the case may be, you've got the equipment. Never, never um, mold board. Oh, okay, so that, <laughs> so we took care of the guy that only has a spreader and a backpack sprayer. And he put in that food plot and you're going to add some rye, rye or winter wheat to it. If anything, if you're going to do that, I'd use per, uh, annual ryegrass comes up really easy and it kills off so that you don't have to terminate it again the following the following year. You don't have that for a competitor. You don't have to terminate it at all. Um, it would, you could just add your your clover to it. So now we'll move up to a guy that can till a little bit. So he's got a rototiller or a quack digger on the back of his tractor that's when you can, if you want to put in some clover, I, I like to do it a number of ways. And again, this depends on deer density. It depends on the type of soil, but sometimes I'll just use buckwheat. Like a lot of my plots I'm going to plant this year. I just bought a ton of buckwheat. It's sitting in my barn. I'm going to punch that in on where I had brassicas and where I had sorghums last year will be uh, buckwheat. It kind of drought proofs you a little bit as the biggest thing that I like about doing that. Um, it gives you a nice thick mat to plant into in not too long and it lets the soil temperatures come up a little bit and it'll hold some moisture in. So then I'll no-till into those. The gentleman that I talk to at the deer shows that have equipment like that, I always tell them, well, you know, if they're going to put in clover, alfalfa or subtype of a blend that on each bag of seed, it gives directions. And it usually just calls for a simple 300 pounds of AAA or 400 pounds of triple 10. And if you can, if you're around where there's a feed mill, you're better off if you get some starter fertilizer. So it's low nitrogen, the, the three, the NPK period, a table of elements that just think back then, John, when you were in science class, if the science teacher would have told you this periodic table of elements will help you kill a deer someday, how much better you would have listened. But the, so you got N, P, K, N, nitrogen, P, phosphorus, K is potassium. You want low nitrogen and higher phosphorus and potassium. That'll blow the plant up out of the ground without feeding the weeds as much. And then, so you would put that in at planting. And then if it's an annual, when the crops up out of the ground a ways, you go and put some nitrogen over the top of it. It'll turn into a real nice food plot. Um, a soil test is a better way because then you can put on exactly what it needs. And John uses some real involved soil tests. Um, that's always a good idea to get a soil test from a local lab to know how to amend your soil properly. However, so if you do the soil test, you do the starter fertilizer, you till it in. And then, like John said, if you're going to put in clover or alfalfa or chicory, a nurse crop is always a good idea. That jumps up out of the ground, oats germinate in about three days, so that blocks out any weed competition. It's more important in the fall or in the spring than in the fall, the weeds. Weeds know inherently not to germinate in the fall because they're not going to be able to mature and turn into a, a plant that gives seeds. So that's why you get less weed competition in the fall than you do in the spring. So in the spring, definitely want to use a nurse crop. 
peas and oats are good. Regular oats are good. They just fade out or get mowed off, and then you have a nice crop underneath of your uh, of your clover, alfalfa, or chicory. So that's for small seeds. Um, the small seeds, when you're adding the oats or the peas as a nurse crop, you want to use a lesser dose than what you normally would plant. So if it calls for two bushels an acre, you would only use maybe one bushel or a bushel and a half, depending on your soil, because you don't want the oats or the nurse crop to actually act as weeds and completely block out your small seeds. You just want them to give some shade and some protection and block out the weeds. That's all good points, Todd. So you brought up some of the nurse crops. Uh, oats was being one of them. I, I tend to use uh, spring triticale quite often in our areas as, as well as oats, depending on my combination. And um, what I like to use during those early spring month periods is I do a buckwheat combination with peas and oats. And uh, I may transfer that oats to triticale. So it basically, it's they're all complementary of one another. Uh, one may not uh, exceed the other, at least in size and dimension, assuming that you're having the balanced volume of seed, to Todd's point. Um, but I typically will favor the grass in that equation because I'm going to later crimp my, my food plot. So I'm a little bit different in the sense that I don't have a no-till. I'd love to have one. I don't. So I have to really focus on my cycles of plants and what plants are in there and making sure that I have a plant that I can roller crimp. And you can roller crimp almost all plants. Um, I've even roller crimped brassicas with some level of success, sorghums, even stemmy hemp. I've I've really roller crimped everything, but the ones that do the best are, you know, the, the typical grasses like the triticale, the the spring oats, you know, winter rye, wheat, those type of plants. So they're usually the a predominance in my seed blend, like normally around 60% or 65%. And that detracts a little bit from my diversity, uh, but I still try to have a lot of diversity in my blends. And this really, my system is kind of a throw and grow type system where you know I'm trying to time everything where I've got a plant reaching maturity I'm crimping it and just before I crimp it I broadcast seed in there and you could broadcast seed you don't have to necessarily you know you could till an area and broadcast seed you don't necessarily have a planter so to speak but one of the problems you end up in uh, with some of the systems where you you've tilled an area you've broadcasted the seed your depth may be variable so you may have to increase the volume of seed because again Smaller seed, if it goes way down too deep, it may not have enough energy. It's called endosperm. So there's a little bit of a science topic for you. Uh, it does not have enough energy to reach the, the surface, and, and that could be problematic. So thinking about your depth of that seed, the one thing I always get concerned with, and I'm just throwing this out there because other people have probably thought about this, is when you have these really like diverse blends, and say it's like a five or ten species, and the seed size varies significantly, and you're just broadcasting that seed across, you know, your tilled area, and then you're going over and, and rolling it or cultipacking or doing something along those lines is, you know, it's kind of hard to control if there's small seed in there, the depth of that seed. It also is uh, hard to control the displacement or the dispersion of that seed. So when I'm doing my blends, one thing I would recommend, if you've got like three or four, you know, like I was giving an example earlier, oats or triticale, peas and, and uh, buckwheat, you know, broadcast those individually. And, you know, make sure that you're layering them correctly across the landscape. Now, those particular blends, I wouldn't be so worried about the depth variation. But again, you should be focused on that. I mean, there's 
rules of thumb, some people say five times the uh, diameter of the seed is the depth of the ground. I've heard eight, I've heard seven, I've heard six. I typically use five as my threshold. Um, but whatever the case may be, the depth of that seed and its ability to germinate you know, could be impacted depending on how it's applied in the landscape. Uh, one other thing to add to Tom's point earlier, if you're doing you know, some shallower seed, smaller seed that doesn't need to go down you know, more than an eighth of an inch, you can you know, cultipack an area, spread that seed, and cultipack it again. And that might be an easy option for you. Obviously, thinking about the moisture and, and where you don't have to worry about you know, not getting that seed to germinate timely. So just an add-on to some, one, some of Todd's suggestions there. Todd, let's kind of go down the road of, you know, we've got this, you know, these different blends or summer blends that we're trying to put together. Give me some of your kind of your favorites that you've worked with over the years that have, you know, good attraction value for deer. So what, what seed blends work either, you know, Whitetail Institute product or just other products that you've created? What, what are some of your favorites? Well, <laughs> It's, it depends on the, on the uh, area, of course, because in sand country, the only thing that you can get to grow really are is corn, of all things, and uh, soybeans do fairly well. So in that situation, I'll just um, drill or broadcast corn and soybeans together. The ratio is two to one. So twice as many beans as corn, you can broadcast it and, uh, and crimp over the top of it or you can drill it into the ground and it comes up pretty good. For some reason, corn, um, it does better than sorghum or any other thing in just pure sand. Um, so in a bigger open area, that's you have to, that, that's your best bet. Now back where there's normal dirt, I like to use sunflower, sun hemp, and uh, sorghum blend, it stands up good uh, with some soybeans in it. That's, that's a power plant from white to Institute sells out every year of everything. It's just a really good blend at a really fair price. And uh, I punch in tons of that every year. The deer eat it. They eat the sun hemp in it later on. They, there's always something there that's attractive to them. Um, it's got the indeterminate growth soybeans. So that um, also you can, uh, a sorghum and sun hemp blend is good. I like just plain sun hemp, but they eat it so fast. I I would love to have a big field of sun hemp here and crimp it down because I like what it does for the soil. But uh, the deer just won't let it get out of the ground in this area, even where the does have been controlled. um, It's just so attractive for some reason. Yeah, So those are some of the summer blends. And go ahead. No, I just think that a lot of people don't know about that sun hemp example that you brought up. And even in the north, I've been using sun hemp on some of my food plots. So thanks for bringing that up. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a great, I mean, it's a great plant for soil health and, but, and the deer just go crazy eating it. Um, But so there's a number of ways you can do that. And when there's high deer density, I think when people talk about seeds getting too deep, really it's the small seeds, the switchgrass, alfalfa, clover, chicory, those type of things, brassicas that can get too deep. The larger seeds, it's pretty tough to get one of those in too deep with standard equipment, unless you have a, like a drill and you drill it too deep or you have your soil so fluffy that you just get it down in the ground. Like, I mean, corn, you'd have to get like three inches before it's an issue of it not coming up. And sometimes I like to till in a blend of bean and corn because it's not all at the same depth. It's not in rows. Therefore, the turkeys don't march right down the rows. The cranes don't march right down the rows. And it doesn't all come up at the same time and be the flavor of the day where a flock of turkeys can take out your whole plot or your whole field in a matter of days. So there is a benefit 
to tilling and call to packing your crop right in. So you would till in your fertilizer, broadcast your large seed, till over the top of it. Your seed depth ends up half of your tillage depth, whether you're disking or tilling over the top. And um, so it becomes somewhat variable. You'll see some on the top and then just call to pack over the top of that. It comes in. And if you'd like, um, you can throw some small seeds over the top of that just for dressing, like some annual rye or something um, that'll come up that they can eat right away. And uh, maybe that gives them an opportunity to get over to the farmer's crop. Again, with, uh, with that, John, timing, you know, it's really hard to not want to get out there and plant right away. But, but if you can just hold your water long enough to let the farmers get their crops in, let his soybeans pop up and his fresh old peas over his alfalfa pop up or corn, fresh little corn shoots that the deer like to chew off and then come in behind that. So timing sometimes is one of the strategies um, we have a tendency to want to get in early coming out of cabin fever. And when you see all the farmers planting, you think I'm missing out. But if you put it in a little later, it stays one, the farmers start to feed it when theirs is comes up first and it gets the deer over there off of yours. Additionally, yours is still green when theirs is turning brown in the fall when we want to hunt over it. So timing, if you have a long enough fall, if you don't live like up northern Michigan or northern Minnesota, some of those where they fall, the growing periods are shorter. And of course, you want to get in as soon as you can, as soon as the soil temperatures will allow. But any of the states like New York, Wisconsin, Iowa, lower Iowa, Missouri, northern Missouri, Kansas, you can, uh, you have a little bigger window. Yeah, great point. I mean, across the board, some of the recommendations there are killer. And when I was talking earlier, I was referring to seed, uh, small seed, when we're talking about, you know, endosperm and just the ability to Develop and having the energy to come out like to your point that the soybean corn combination and just the way that just disperses and creates food and cover and again I, i'm relating the cover component of that to the corn and, and again it breaks up a field a little bit and it's not in rows and that variability i think is really it's interesting it's not something that a lot of people I've, I've seen do in food plot you know regions where they're really focused on you know, creating that kind of that demand, that high demand plant, it's either just a straight corn or straight beans or, you know, it's road. So I, I like that example. I think that's that's a, a good option for, for folks. Let's talk about some problems that you've dealt with and, and and solutions, because I think a lot of people, you know, they get into the fall, into the spring months and they've put a crop down. Maybe they haven't taken a soil sample and they haven't, you know, addressed the deficiencies and, you know, that, that's usually one issue or they're dealing with, you know, water hamp or some other type of plant that, that's, you know, very present and it's, it's overtaken an area. You know, is it better to wait to the fall month depending like, you know, I'm fighting cool season grasses all the time. So I'm trying to deal, you know, with, with spraying out those grasses in the early spring and then I'm dealing with my warm season plants and then I've, I've licked a lot of those early in the spring, so hopefully in the fall when it comes back up to planting season, you know, my second dose of, uh, you know, a generic or specific herbicide will knock all those plants out. And then I'm not dealing with the issue the, the following year. So sometimes planning and preparation go into it. But what are some problems or things you've experienced recently that, that you think could be helpful for folks? Well, I mean, if you have... If you have the equipment and you, and you have the no, now this is more advanced stuff, but there are people that that do a good job. Uh, you can plant sorghum as a crop, Milo. You can put in later in the summertime, so it gives you an opportunity to do some tilling, let your weeds come in, spray them off, 
And then the day that you plant your sorghum or you plant your sorghum and then spray over it with metal or metallochlor, it's a good pre-emergent. It lets the sorghum come up through it, but no other weeds will germinate. So I just, uh, as a matter of fact, I was just out mowing um, a bunch of sorghum that I I put in last year that way, and it is completely clean field. And now the sorghum is really good at mining the phosphorus up out of the soil. And it gave me a nice, it was some terrible soil that I put it in. And um, so that mines some phosphorus up to the top. And now I've got a really nice layer of clean thatch without a lot of weed seeds on top. So that's something you can use your pre-emergence are really, really good way when you're first turning fallow ground back into a crop or you do just what you did. You have to fight those weeds forever every time the sun shines on them. That's why the the other way of killing it off um, with Roundup and then getting some buckwheat in or just continue to kill it the first year and put something in there, whatever you would like in the fall, that's a deer food plot. You could, when I said brassicas, you could just put winter rye if you'd like and then terminate that the following year because uh, the rye, will stop other weed seeds from germinating and plus they're less inclined to germinate in the in the fall. So those are some options just for weed control. Weeds are really a problem for for food plots. And generally speaking, like you talked about without a soil test, people come up to the booth at the deer shows and they'll say, the first year I put it in here, it grew really, really well. And now the second year, there's I just can't get anything but weeds and the crop doesn't come up. Did you do a soil test? Well, no. Did you add any fertilizer? Um, I don't. What do you mean? What do we put in for fertilizer? So it's just some things that um, they used up the fertilizer the first time in the soil, and then after that, they can't get anything to grow or put on too many synthetic inputs, thinking to, that they're helping when too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Um, so those are the common problems that you run into: either not enough fertilizer, too much fertilizer, just some, some small things for soil health. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I've, I've spoke about this before is, you know, keen on those deficiencies. So you, you may laugh, but you know, if you could, again, if you're deficient in a lot of areas, you know, you've got to kind of address those in, in they could be a very small element uh, that's, that's, you know, present on the landscape. And I've got a bunch of them on my property and, Again, flavonoids or flavor is directly correlated to the micronutrients. And I'm going to push this throughout this podcast. You know, not addressing the micronutrients is is uh, is problematic. And I, I don't mean to sound an alarmist, you know, sound like that. But in my opinion, those are things that I'm trying to work on. little story for me is, you know, I got this stuff I call it moon rock that I'm putting on my food plots right now just to address some of the deficiencies. And, you know, we're looking at 40, 50, 60 different micronutrients now that I'm trying to employ beyond, you know, the basic 16, 17 nutrients that we look at when we're looking at a, a broad spectrum, you know, of soil test. So, you know, you can even take a step further. And, and again, there's other labs and other places doing testing on this, but I believe it's directly attributable to the uh you know, the, the nutrient content of the plants that drives interest. And again, more nutrient plant, you know, high nutrient plants going to really help increase that attraction. A couple other additions for those that, you know, don't have, I guess, you know, soybeans, uh, they're not planting soybeans because they may not have the available space. Uh, you know, I typically use a lab lab, iron clay peas, those type of plants that, that have some similar values that, that do well. Uh, they do not handle browse pressure extremely well but they'll handle it better than 
then maybe soybeans. So there's there's some options for you. I'm trying to think about you know problems that I've experienced in the landscape. Again, it's an investment of money. You know, how much money do you want to put into these food plots, and, and really, what's the return on it? Uh, you're not normally focused on yield uh, per se, but you want to make sure that you're getting some volume out of the uh, the food sources. And you know, one thing to think about, and it may not be necessarily something focused on consumption, but some of these plants, even recommending barley or some of these plants that aren't consumed by deer, are really biomass. You know, they, they, they're creating more biomass, and that material is going to break down. And they're going to serve a purpose uh, with all the insects and microbes that are a part of your soil, kind of giving kind of a feeding source. Look at it as you're, you know, you're planting some variation of plants, like flax is a good example, and putting them in there. And they're, they're synergies of those plants, and they, they become a food source as they decay and die. Uh, the ones that are perennial, of course, will continue to live. But again, there's a lot of exchange when you have a, a living plant there on a consistent basis or a plant that you're rotating in an annual cycle. And last point is every time we till, you know, you're typically oxidizing the ground and you're losing organic material, uh, a, a part of that. So, you know, these guys that have these food plots for the first year, they do well. The second year, the third year, it starts to decline. They've just done, you know, massive amount of tillage over that time. So thinking about a no-till option you know, a throw and grow or, you know, something along those lines may be beneficial to you. So keep your eyes open to that. And I'm not saying, you know, don't till. I do resets or you could burn an area. Um, there's ways that you can work on a, uh, you know, the surface and, and not disturb it too greatly. And maybe you just till, you know, maybe a half an inch down and, and you're, you're, you're disturbing, you know, little parts of the soil. Remember, your organic material should extend, you know, three, four, five, six, seven inches, you know, mentally in the soil. And so that's your food source for your microbes, which feed your plants. So, you know, those are really important things to consider if you're thinking about, you know, how to amend soil or how to work with soil. Um, Todd, anything else, any like unique new strategies? You want to talk about the bean thing you and I talked about the other day with the rye or no, we'll save that for another discussion. I already forgot what it was. Oh, <laughs> uh, you and I were going after you, after you remind me, we'll talk about it, but um, <laughs> something up here that's getting really popular put in the Northern climes is Chufa. Guys are having a blast with it. Okay. Chufa, if you're not familiar with it, uh, just for people that might not be familiar with it, it's a little bit bigger than a soybean. It grows a whole pod like peanuts underneath the ground. It's basically like, um, it's so rich in carbohydrates. It's like growing underground acorns. Historically, chufa was used for turkeys in the south, but they found out in a hurry that clovers in the south so that the turkeys are out bugging in the clovers and eating the clover is a good good hunting uh, strategy, better than, than the uh, chufas were in northern like Right now, our turkey season's open, and there's no bugs anywhere in any clover. We'll be lucky if we don't have snow over it. And I think on the youth hunt, there was snow. So, guys, been planting chufa. It's a an, a, a, a perennial. Uh, it grows like peanuts on the soil. You punch it in. Works good if you put a pre-emergent over the top of it. And you're basically growing little acorns underground. And uh, you just flip a couple up in the fall, and the turkeys are in there scratching. And the next year, it's just like hunting over bait practically. But deer, ducks, geese, all dig and get at that, get at the chufa. So if you're looking for something a little different than your neighbor has, looking for an edge on turkey hunting, I'd really take a look at uh, at chufa. And then, um, you know, I got a lot of questions on mowing food plots this year at the deer shows, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. That the theory has always been: you mow in June, throw some potash on, say clover, alfalfa. And then uh, mow again in August because the tender new growth is more attractive to the deer. Now, 
I hold that to be true if your dough population is under control. Um, most people are more worried about their food plot being wiped out before the hunting season even gets here. That's the biggest problem that they have. So uh, the latest from the Quality Deer Management Association is saying don't mow. They did a study mowing alfalfa and mowing clover, and they found that the attractiveness is there's no difference in attractiveness. They eat it just as much. The only difference is if you don't mow it, there's more biomass there. There's that many more tons of forage for deer to eat. So it's something to consider. So, so let's break it down a little bit. Why, why do you mow it? You mow in June because you want it to, you want to spread the seeds and you want to clip off any broadleaf. So you, you mow then to stop broadleaf competition. So maybe you want to skip your August mowing, but if your neighbor has some and it's a little more tender and you think they're going to be in there, mow an X through your food plot or mow a center of your food plot and not all of your food plot so that there's some tender stuff and then there's still quite a bit of biomass. So there's just some strategies there. Chufa, whether you're to mow or not to mow um, your clover. And that really is the biggest issue is people say, what can I put in that's not completely gone by the time the hunting season gets there? And that's why I think really brassicas got started as a fall food plot because they don't get attractive until the frost. So they usually stay off of them until the first frost. But I put in a lot of soybeans in August. They're green. The deer like the leaves of the soybeans better. But the problem is they won't take a frost. So those tender soybeans, highly attractive for fall. My clients get a lot of deer in them in the fall, but they don't take a frost. So then I started blending Austrian winter peas in with them. And that winter pea is just like a winter hardy soybean. I mean, it's a legume. Deer love it. It's a complete ice cream plant for deer. So if you do um, winter peas with triticale, I've gone to just that versus the soybeans because the weeds are under control. So you don't have to worry about having Roundup Ready soybeans put in the ground. And with the water hemp that you described earlier being a problem, you can till in, you can get, if water hemp won't grow, if you till it in, you plant your fall Austrian winter pea, maybe with triticale, and you've got a killer plot. Um, that's something that's a little bit different than the farmers or anybody else is growing in your area, hopefully. And uh, it can take a frost. It's there under the snow. It's uh, different than just clover or alfalfa. And it can be a really killer setup. It's funny you say that. I've done that for the past several years, and it's worked really well. There's a pea that I'm using. It's a survivor pea. It's a little bit different than an Austrian winter pea. And it's done a little bit better in my climate for some reason as comparison. I did a side-by-side a couple years ago. So just kind of a, a note there. So play around with some of the pea varieties in that equation that, that Todd suggested. And, and, you know, I echo what he says because I, I, I've seen that work really, really well. All right, Todd, um, I'm not going to get to that secret and trick that we talked about earlier because we've still got some more testing. Uh-oh, my daughter's just yelling for me. Honey, I'll be uh-huh. up in a second. Honey. I didn't eat your hash browns. I'm going to, I didn't touch up. All right. I got a feeling you did eat her hash browns. No, I didn't. I did. Oh, we'll keep, we'll keep, we'll keep that in there. All right. <laughs> we'll keep this in. Um, yeah. So that we'll save that for, for another discussion, just the kind of a unique uh, option for people with, with bean planning. So, I don't have anything else, man. I think you kind of laid it on people. There's a lot to know here. You know, that's why you've got us as resources and other people that you can talk to and, 
you know, I know that you're obviously the Whitetail Institute uh, guru. Uh, you sell a lot of their product, but you deal with plants all the time, and you're you're coming up with combinations and ideas just to make sure that your clients have the, the best options. So anything you want to end, end with on, on your part? Yeah, just keep it fun. You can overcomplicate it, oversimplify it. And I always tell people, you know, land management is a journey. It's not an end. You don't, you don't want to put it all in all at one time and sit back and shoot a deer. Make sure your kids have fun and involve your kids. Take your time. Uh, I've got a couple of people call me recently that they just bought new land and they want to like hammer it over the next five years. And it's fine, but keep it fun. You know, enjoy it. I always tell people the first year, sit back and see what the deer do. Um, enjoy it. Play with it. See where the deer are, where they bed, how they're moving a little bit. And the, and enhance that and build on that and see how it is versus um, going in without seeing any of that. So, yeah, I, I guess I, I, I like that because I think going slow before you go fast, yeah. go slow before you can speed up. And then, you know, once you, once you know what's going on, then go, then go bonkers. And it gives you time to save money to maybe implement those, you know, quick changes that you want to make or paying somebody to come in and do, do timber management, whatever the case, you know, I, I think that's one thing that, I've been giving my clients homework. Like, here's just the, here's the homework. You know, I, I've got clients, you know, in the 2023, we're booking towards the end of 23 now. And I've told the clients, here's your homework. You got to get all this done before I come. So when I come, it's more of a meaningful discussion. And they've got a plan and an agenda. And I would say with anybody, take take Todd's, you know, suggestion to heart. Because I think if you sit back and listen to this podcast and and kind of focus in on, you know, the areas that, that you can make improvements on, and this observe more, you know, you may be off and, and not destroying something that, that maybe, you know, down the road, you know, you wish you didn't do. So I think that's a, a great suggestion to, to Todd's point. So sorry, Todd, I had to jump in. Well, I'm glad you did. Okay. Slow is fast, fast is slow. So good. All right. I think that's uh, good on my end. Anything else? Nope. All right. Good cool. All right. All right, guys. Thanks for following us. More from us uh, in a future episode. Thank you. Take care. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.